The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Compatibility. I am Eric Weimer, and with me is the ever-lovely Dr. Kelly Hitchman. How are um, you, Kelly? I, I am always better when I am with you and Mandy, because I get to hear such wonderful things, such as, such as this introduction that you do. It's very flattering. You've earned it. Oh, shucks. So happy lab week, everyone. Happy lab week. Woo! So what is your lab doing, Kelly? Oh my gosh, we're doing so many things. Let me see. Oh, I'm going to hit the high tell. notes. So last year we did a a tasting, a blindfolded tasting called "Is It Real?" And we had like I can't. I'm trying to remember. We had like real pretzels versus like gluten free pretzels, and we had like real sausage versus like soy riso, things like that. And okay. it was quite shocking. There were some people who have very sensitive palates. And admittedly, there were a few people that you would think would have a very good palate that could not tell what was real. So that that is uh, one thing. We tried to do a hot sauce challenge, but the hot sauce was quite a letdown. None of it was hot. So this year we are upping the ante. And why, why just do hot sauce when the world apparently is full of other hot foods? So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the game Bean Boozled, but no, there is I'm a not. hot Bean Boozled version of the game where the jelly beans get increasingly hotter. So we're going to do a Bean Boozled fiery competition. Okay. We're going to try the spiciest gummy bear ever made in the history of the world and we are going to try hell popcorn oh okay where where are you getting these ideas from like amazon. what okay that's fair <laughs> enough well done amazon. i mean that's that's fair enough yeah. not a paid sponsor of the program by the way not at all but if you want to we're here so amazon. i have to know how did your taste palette perform in the taste test Ah, uh, yes. So I think I can't remember if I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but I eat weird. Um, I do not eat meat and I do not eat dairy. So I am one with the not real foods. So I know them right away, right away. I know them right away because if I eat the, if I eat the real ones, my stomach is not happy. That's that is a <laughs> lot of information. And I appreciate you true. sharing. It's just true. I am an open book. You're I'm amongst friends and we appreciate you sharing. Our lab, on the other hand, is not doing anything as fun as what your lab is doing with the spicy contest from all get out. Um, we will probably just have like traditional like lunch, you know, maybe some cupcakes. Hey, that's good. Maybe a donut. Oh, hey, those cupcakes going to have sprinkles. Probably. Like the donut just like I mean, ties it to. all together. I, I mean, think those to. are all great things to do. 
So listeners, I don't know if you know, but Mandy always has a beautiful list of things that we can talk about, like during the intro, like current events and topics. And one of the things that she put on here is tax day. So I think all that we should say about that is. I second that. But much more exciting and worth uh, worth a mention is uh, our feedback from our valuable listeners about our interview with uh, Wheat Schroyer Government Relations last month. And I, I love this feedback. Uh, listener Julie says, this was very informative. I have had no prior knowledge of policymaking procedures. Thank you, Julie. That's, that's why we have these topics. Terry says, I liked it. I had not heard of the Ballot Act, so it was nice to be informed about it. And Jason says, transplants highly rely on the reimbursement, and it's good to know what's going on in D.C. And Jason, you are right on. That is awesome feedback. Thank you all for, for listening and uh, giving your feedback on the episodes. We, we do pay attention to what you say, and we'll be right back for a discussion on antibody measurements in clinical trials with Dr. Nicole Valenzuela. Yeah, this is a multi-part series, guys. This is first in the series for the STAR work group. We'll be right back. Good morning, Coffee and Compatibility listeners. We are so excited to share that the ASHI Educational Workshop is coming up in just two months. This year, we'll host the ASHI Educational Workshop 1 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on June 23rd through 25th, 2022. This is a highly immersive workshop and specifically our last session, practical workshop on best practices in HLA antibody testing and analysis part one and two are completely interactive. Once registered, we'll send you some pre-work for these sessions to be completed by the end of May. You'll see your work analyzed and discussed live during the final sessions. We want you to be prepared, so register by early May to receive your pre-work and be fully engaged with the speakers, program, and ASHI Educational Workshop attendees. Virtual attendees of Workshop 2 will see both sessions on July 29th. Welcome back, everybody. Today, like we said, is the first in a series on coffee and compatibility to review the updates in the STAR workgroup. So on today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Nicole Valenzuela, an assistant director at the UCLA Immunogenetics Center and an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. Her current research explores the heterogeneity of inflammatory phenotypes and functions across endothelial cells from different vascular beds and tissues of origin, but she's also part of the STAR work group and is leading a subgroup that we will hear about soon. Dr. Nicole Valenzuela, may we call you Nicole? Yes, of course. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So you are here to educate us on the STAR working group. Do you mind starting with sort of what is the STAR working group? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so STAR stands for Sensitization and Transplantation Assessment of Risk, which is a very long name. And um, they started out with initial recommendations in 2017. And the goal was really to uh, review the literature and identify data-driven practices for more rigorous assessment of risk, um, namely HLA typing and compatibility assessment. And um, they released their initial guidelines in 2017, as I said, and identified mostly key areas where there were gaps in knowledge and made recommendations uh, to encourage more research in those areas. 
And they followed that up in uh, 2019 with an expansion of um, what was new since the last review. And um, so now we have STAR 2022 um, with another two-year update. And the scope of, of STAR has really expanded over time. So the most recent STAR covers a lot of different topics compared to kind of when they started in 2017. So Nicole, the STAR work group, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's evolved and it's grown and it's split out into subgroups. And the subgroups gave a wonderful pre-meeting uh, session uh, before cutting edge of transplantation this year, um, which was just last week uh, as we record this. So you are part of a very specific subgroup. So can you tell us what that subgroup is and what the goals of the subgroup research are? Yeah, so our subgroup was focused on um, HLA antibody measurements. And specifically what we were trying to do was to build on the previous recommendations that had addressed rigorous antibody assignment and identification in order to move to um, a type of measurement that really could tell the difference between a low-level antibody and a high-level antibody in order to better stratify their risk. And so this is in um, multiple different types of settings. For example, you may have two donors and um, each donor has a donor-specific antibody. And when you're trying to select that donor, you want to determine which antibody might be higher level in higher abundance and therefore we would infer of a greater risk. Another area where this um, type of accurate measurement of changes in antibody quantity is important is in desensitization and antibody mediated rejection. And so when you're trying to ad address the efficacy of your therapy or to associate levels of DSA with outcomes, it's really critical that you have accurate approaches to determine that there's more antibody here and less antibody there. And so what we did is we reviewed the literature just to kind of see what was being used both in um, retrospective clinical studies, as well as in randomized clinical trials to see if we could find some of the approaches that seemed to give the best um, result and also to identify some kind of approaches that didn't seem to be as useful. So it sounds like the data that you guys are using are derived from the literature. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, that's right. Um, we, re we reviewed as much of the literature as we could, including, including, as I said, focus on the randomized clinical trials and large kind of high impact studies. And um, there were some areas where our group also relied on our own internal expertise. And each of the subgroups, when they um, formed their initial recommendations, presented to the rest of the larger STAR group and got feedback. And then we had another iteration where we presented at AST in a series of webinars and got additional feedback from um, the field in general, both clinicians and the HLA community. And our, all of our subgroups are composed of um, not only HLA professionals, but also clinicians in transplantation. So what is your hope with uh, all of the evaluation and you know, sort of approach that you guys are taking? What is your hope in how they will be applied in practice? Yeah, so our hope is that these are guidelines um, that would be taken for our, our subgroup particularly was focused on um, providing recommendations for clinical trials, but we would hope that those also would then bleed over into routine clinical practice. So for example, um, one of the recommendations that we made is that in measuring efficacy of desensitization, 
one single endpoint is not sufficient to determine either biological efficacy or clinical efficacy of your therapy. So if you rely, for example, only on CPRA, did my therapy reduce the patient's CPRA? That metric alone is highly clinically significant because it reflects access to donors, but it is flawed in that it's highly reliant in the calculation on the frequency of the antibody that is reduced. And therefore, if you only use CPRA and you see no change, you may inaccurately interpret that your therapy had no effect if you did in fact reduce some antibodies in actuality. Yeah, that actually brings up a really good point because many years ago, uh, there was a multi-center study done showing that the variability in the single antigen assay that we utilize to detect anti-HLA antibodies is very, very high. And even when you standardize the protocol and standardize the samples used, the variability is still very, very high. So that alone says that we need to be doing something to come to more of a consensus in the way that we collect our data. Uh, but there is some controversy here too, uh, because laboratories treat their serum samples different ways. They analyze their data different ways. Uh, so how is the STAR work group using the data it's collected uh, to help us understand from a clinical trial standpoint what we could be doing differently or better in the way that we collect and analyze our data? Yeah, that's a great question. So that study um, of standardization of the single antigen assay and the percent CV in the MFI readout really formed the basis of the recommendations initially in 2017. And um, we tried to expand and clarify some of those recommendations, um, particularly for this question of accurately measuring changes in antibodies in a randomized clinical trial setting. And um, one of the, the points that we wanted to clarify is that the um, initial study suggested a cutoff of 1,000 to 1,200 MFI as a positive negative cutoff for antibody identification and assignment. Um, but we wanted to emphasize that it's still not appropriate to just draw a hard line and say everything above that is positive and everything below that is negative. Because of course there are false negative patterns. There are apparent self-reactivity patterns that we see that actually are allele specific. And we wanted to emphasize that this is an assay that requires expert interpretation and adjudication of those types of patterns. In addition, the data that had come out of that CTOP standardization study also supported the fact that there's variation in MFI even when you standardize your assays, and consequently, an MFI change of 25 to 50% probably doesn't represent a meaningful change because it's within the technical variation range. And so in thinking about a baseline sample versus a follow-up sample after therapy, you really want to be looking for a significant, technically significant change above and beyond the technical variation, which we suggested was at least 25 to 50%. However, we're, we're clarifying this time that that does not mean, again, everything above that cutoff is truly representative of a change. In particular, the low-level antibodies can be problematic because of the shared epitope phenomenon or simply because the CV is much more um, variable at the lower end. So for example, if you have an antibody that goes from 1500 to 1000, 
that probably doesn't mean that the actual abundance of the antibody changed, even though it meets that threshold of 50%. So what we're really recommending is kind of an elevated level of interpretation of this data when we're looking at not only the clinical trial setting, but also just in routine daily practice is really labs should be thinking about these things when they're consulting with their physicians about whether their therapy is really doing something for their patient. No, I mean, that sounds, I'm so in line with what you're talking about in the hard cutoff being a sort of an arbitrary line that we draw in the sand. But I think it's interesting the way that, that, that you guys are approaching it in sort of emphasizing the role of, you know, expert opinion in interpreting the single antigen bead assay data for whatever the purpose may be, uh, clinical trials or a specific patient. The something that comes up, I think, is how do we use not only epilet analysis for this sort of approach and understanding HLA antibodies, but also there's been a couple of publications looking at the role of machine learning pattern recognition in single antigen bead sort of interpretation. I don't know if you, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So our subgroup didn't directly address applet analysis. Actually, that is um, the focus of another group. But I think it's a really uh, a salient point in the, the kind of consideration of true uh, positive patterns because of the, the, you know, what's been called the shared epitope phenomenon. So if a patient has an antibody to BW4, for example, all of those antibodies may be below your positive cutoff, but that doesn't mean the antibody isn't there. And so if there's some kind of standardized approach, such as an eplet or epitope or machine learning um, analysis in order to identify those shared patterns among your antibodies, then laboratories may be um, better able to adopt that practice instead of what we're currently doing is just using um, human analysis and human identification of epitopes to say, you know, the donor is B44, B44 is only 500, we would call that negative, but the pattern is a BW4. So we think there's a DSA, even though we wouldn't necessarily call the single antibody. I think if we had a more standardized approach, like what you're suggesting, that might, you know, be more widely adopted. So, I mean, I, I, I obviously agree. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have asked that question, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm and interested. Another, another point, if I can interject, is um, DP. I don't know if you guys are experiencing this, but with the expansion of DP typing in deceased donors, we're having to do a lot of prediction of cross-reactivity, right? And so I think that this epitope analysis will be really helpful because one of the other points that we raise um, in our STAR work group is that um, there are a lot of alleles uh, that are out there in our donor and patient population that are not represented on our single antigen panels, not only DP, but especially DP. And so we don't want to be disadvantaging our patients or potentially missing a donor specific antibody because we can't correlate the patterns that we have empiric data for with the actual allele that is present in the donor. So we're oh. encouraging work with the, with the vendors um, to expand those panels. Um, and and um, I think the international workshop is also working on that. Yeah, that's going to be a really important thing to do in the years to come. And I mean, there are going to be all kinds of questions. The more we expand the panels, do we actually enhance the problem of epitope spreading? Right. Does it mean we need to go back to grouped panels? But with the DP, I totally feel you because that that 84 DEAV, oh mm -hmm. my goodness, <laughs> total geek moment. That is a super broad DP eplet. 
and we see it all the time. And it's a real conundrum what to do with it, especially when your patients are cross-match positive. Yeah, agreed. So Nicole, tell me, is part is part of the goal of the data gathering for the STAR work group, especially from a clinical trials perspective, to gain more political or regulatory buy-in to uh, the way that HLA data plays into really important clinical decisions, you know, the FDA, CMS, it is part of this to kind of work towards best practices so that the data is seen with more importance and legitimacy? You know, that wasn't an explicit goal, but I think it is a good point, especially when we're thinking about um, accepting measurements of HLA as an endpoint in a clinical trial, because you can write that in and that they often do say that they're going to measure HLA antibodies longitudinally, but exactly what metrics are they using in order to monitor those HLA antibodies? I think those haven't been defined. And so as we get closer to approaches that are, you know, more, they have more data for accuracy. I think that maybe that will come down the pike, but right now what we were trying to do is to really say there's no single metric that's appropriate at this time. Um, there are some that are really widely used, such as immunodominant DSA or immunodominant antibody that have significant flaws, and we actually don't recommend using those at all anymore. Um, and one of the main reasons is because of this phenomenon of prozone, right? is that the, the antibody that's actually in the highest quantity or is the highest titer in a serum may have the lowest MFI if you don't do anything to treat your serum or perform dilutions. And so this is especially flawed given the high variability from laboratory to laboratory and how they're actually treating antibodies and how they're assessing for high titer antibodies. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I think you brought up a really good point before when you were talking about the suggestion of multiple endpoints for desensitization. Can you maybe elaborate on that of mm -hmm. what are your recommendations as potential endpoints? Yeah, so um, the, the two clinicians who were on our work group were Carrie Shinstock and Marta Crespo, and they focused on uh, pre-transplant uh, trials and post-transplant trials. And they really assessed basically everything that had been reported, um, immunodominant DSA, CPRA, MFI changes of a specific DSA, changes in physical cross-match, and there were strengths and weaknesses of each of those. But then again, as I said, because there are weaknesses, you really can't rely on only one of those. And so our recommendation is that multiple endpoints are needed and those should be really complementary to each other. So not redundant or measuring the same thing, but also in addition to those endpoints, just the practice that labs are using to get to the endpoints is important. And so one of the strongest recommendations we're making is that especially in randomized clinical trials, dilution is, is really necessary to make sure that you can adjudicate these high titer antibodies. So one example would be if I have an antibody that's measured at 25,000 MFI to begin with, and I treat my patient, and at the end of treatment, it's still 25,000. Did I make an impact on, the, on that antibody? I actually can't say because it's above the, the level of, of measurement of its actual quantity. So dilution helps you answer that. Um, and so we're really, really concerned that there might be some misinterpretation of these um, types of efficacy measurements if you don't perform dilution. 
um, you know, Anat has really kind of pushed for this type of titration series, which we are not um, actually recommending that every patient needs dilution. And we are not recommending that titration is necessary. I would distinguish titration from dilution by saying that titration is taking the serum and diluting it until you get a negative, which might be 10 times or 100 times, and that's laborious and expensive and just not necessary. But additional dilutions in order to make sure that you know that you have an antibody that's high titer or very high titer before you measure it is really important. And I know that this, this has been a very controversial suggestion often the controversy comes from manpower and, and finance uh, because we're not really great at billing for these tests, which essentially you're, every time you do an additional dilution, you're running the same test on the on same, same sample. Mm-hmm. So there, I, I've heard some strategies put forth about how to deal with that, maybe doing the next dilution on a different day or um, mm-hmm. maybe only doing certain dilutions. Are there certain dilutions that seem more informative in certain circumstances than others? I think that's a very controversial question. And among the laboratories that are doing dilution, you will find wide variability in what they're using. Um, I have experience with uh, tenfold dilutions. So one to 10, one to 100, one to 1000. Um, Other laboratories are doing uh, twofold dilutions. And um, I think what based on really Carrie and Anat's experience, what was recommended was um, one to 16 and one to 32, because they have correlations with when C1Q becomes negative. And so we don't really address the C1Q test um, in our subgroup, but we do find as a group, just based on expert experience, is that um, the complement assays are really helpful for identifying these high titer antibodies just as a surrogate of antibody quantity. And so um, their experience with those other types of dilutions has been that one to 16, one to 32 really correlates with when C1Q starts to become negative. So that brings me to the question that I often struggle with, which is how do you consider reporting all of these metrics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's- You like how I just left it there so that- You did, it's very broad. So I'll pick a metric, how about that? (laughs) Um, We would not, uh, first I have to say, we would not consider that reporting or tracking immunodominant antibody or immunodominant DSA um, is informative at this time, just based on on the literature. Um, If you wanted to report CPRA, I think that one of the ideas that's coming out is that um, CPRA at different titers seems to be helpful. So there's kind of two main papers that have kind of shown this. The first is that patients, if you start out with a patient cohort and they're all 100% CPRA, and then you do a titration study of their sera and monitor the CPRA at each of those dilutions, you find that those patients are widely different actually in how they start out. So some patients may remain 100% CPRA at a one to 1000 dilution, which is a crazy amount of antibody, right? And other patients may go to a 0% CPRA. So the serum becomes negative for HLA antibodies at one to 16. And so, Um, you know, reporting the CPRA at titers and how that titer changes over time seems to be helpful. Um, So that would be one potential adjunctive endpoint in addition to just the patient CPRA. 
Um, so, you know, one of the things that we recognize is, again, why we're not recommending titration is you may get a lot of scientific and interesting data by doing a full titration. But the reality is that we need to provide a clinically valuable readout um, and not, you know, just go crazy with dilutions and expense. So if you have a DSA that reduces from a one to 1000 titer to a one to 100 titer after your efficacy, it's still really high titer and you probably wouldn't cross it. And so do you need to define that it was a you know, one to 1000 versus one to 100? Or do you need to just say, you know, it's just not going to be acceptable no matter what? I think so. I think that is a very good answer to what I was artificially intended to be a difficult question. So, you know, we like to get into a little bit of controversy and who gets more controversial than how do you report HLA antibodies? So um, thank you very much for your time, Nicole. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. So Kelly, what did you think of Nicole's topic? You know, I, I do have to admit that sometimes I get a little uncomfortable with the notion that we don't have great best practice definitions. And I'm not one of those that necessarily assumes that what I'm doing is the best or most accurate way to do things. I I absolutely want to learn from others and the leaders in our field. And that I think is the the goal of the star work group. I love it that they're so data driven. It's really hard to refute data. Yeah. You know, that's the one part that really sticks out to me is that one, Dr. Valenzuela is incredibly well-spoken. Two, that the subgroup that she's involved with is focusing on published data to sort of guide their recommendations for clinical trial best practices. And, you know, really trying to be thoughtful in their guidance about what should and should not be done, you know, rather than just tartaring out something to endpoint, right? Because that may not yield something that has clinical value, but more, we'll say academic value to it. So I really appreciate her insights into, uh, you know, how we should approach these complex antibody determinations. Absolutely. I think the variability and the subjectivity in some of what we do is a, a frustrating hurdle uh, for everybody in the field. And so if we can come to consensus and if we can find data-driven solutions for that variability, it'll only legitimize the work that we're doing and help our patients and our clinical partners. So it's a, it's a great initiative. And I, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode today just as much as I did. Awesome. Well, as always, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back with you next month. Bye. Bye, guys.